0: Uh, This is Houston. Uh, Say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. We got the rate patrol on the gate patrol. Fools that want to celebrate when that trade gets cold. Critics that want to tell you that you should have sold. But we don't run, son, right down the tent and fold. When the market retraces, we have a higher threshold. We're here for a minute, not about to roll. At the first signs of selling, now nah, you got to pay a toll. No reward without risk, no gains without goals. No easy money, no diamonds without coal. We need a plan for all markets, got to search into our souls. Know why we're here, got to feel it in our chest. Let's stay smart together on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and roll down the window because sentiment suddenly stinks. Stocks got slapped to open the year, snapping a nine-week winning streak for the major U.S. indices as investors reassess their expectations for when the Fed may start cutting rates in 2024 and whether stocks may have come too far too fast. For the holiday shortened week, The first trading week of the year, the NASDAQ composite was down 3.2%, its biggest drop since September, while the S&P 500 fell 1.5% and the Dow Jones shed 0.6%. Santa Claus, my friends, did not come to town, at least to the corner of Wall and Broad. No Santa Claus rally this year, but we better be grateful for all the gifts we got in 2023. Still, stocks were officially lowered during that Santa Claus rally period, the last week of December, and the first two trading days of January. That doesn't happen very often, and when it does, The month of January is lower 60% of the time. And if you want to stay seasonal, a lower January usually means a lower year if you remember the January effect and the January barometer. But we don't invest month to month. The pros do. That's their job. We are here for the long term. And sell-offs after nine weeks of gains are not weird. Retracements, profit-taking, rebalancing, sector rotation, they're all part of the dynamics that move markets. It's cool. And that's what we're going to be. We're going to be cool. Correct the mundo. And that's what we're gonna be, we're gonna be cool. Thank you, Jules. We'll be cool. I promise. The December jobs report was a little hotter than expected, though, at least on the surface. US employers added 216,000 jobs last month, bringing the 2023 total to 2.7 million. That's a lot of job gains for a year a lot of people thought we'd fall into a recession. There were also strong gains in private sector hiring and wage growth, which is something the Fed has been trying to dampen over the past 18 months, remains resilient. Average hourly earnings jumped another 15 cents last month. And while that doesn't sound like a lot, wages are up 4.1% year over year. For the first time in a long time, wage gains are exceeding inflation, and that should lead to more consumer spending, which should keep prices propped up so the inflation narrative may not be over just yet. And maybe that is what keeps the Fed from cutting rates in March or May. We'll see. It's all data dependent, and that data starts rolling in this week. Under the surface, however, the labor market is slowing. November and October job gains were revised lower, and the three month hiring trend to end the year was markedly lower than the previous nine months. The labor force participation rate fell to 62.5%, the biggest decline in nearly three years. Less people looking for work means the unemployment rate's going to remain low, at least for now. If companies start to feel a slowdown and margins tighten, layoffs could soon follow. And that brings us right to our big three for the week. Chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. Chocolate investors finally got around to believing in the rally in december after favoring safer investments like money markets and cds all year we started buying stocks and etfs like they were on holiday sale to be fair september and october were rough months for the stock market and it wasn't until the fed started signaling the end of the rate cuts by november that stocks regained their footing And we started buying exchange traded funds took in a record 135 billion dollars in december finishing out the year with 597 billion dollars in inflows 2023 was the fourth year in a row that etfs have brought in over 500 billion dollars of flows where was all that money flowing in the etf waters well active etfs took in 22 percent of total flows in 2023 and that's a theme we're going to be hearing about all year Actively managed funds and ETFs are back in style as the market gets more challenging. Fixed income ETFs brought in $210 billion last year, the second most ever for that class. As yields spiked and prices fell, there were deals to be had all over the bond market. While gold ETFs attracted a lot of money and attention in December, they actually posted $4 billion of net outflows for the year. And the biggest equity ETFs kept getting bigger. The top five ETFs by assets under management, SPY with $483 billion in assets under management. IVV, that's the iShares core S&P ETF, has $397 billion. VOO, the Vanguard S&P ETF, $366 billion, and VTI Vanguard's total stock market ETF has $342 billion. All these ETFs track the S&P 500, and their top holdings look a lot like the top 10 stocks in the stock market today. The herd likes to stay together. Number two. It's official. U.S. national debt hit $34 trillion for the first time. That's over 12 trillion more than where it was five years ago. Granted, a lot happened in the past five years, like a global pandemic, and the government was throwing around a lot of money. Debt as a percentage of GDP is an eye-popping, face-slapping, ice-water bucket dumping 123%. That's up from 101% in 2015 and 31% in 1980. At $34 trillion, our national debt, which includes debt held by the public as well as debt held by federal trusts and other government accounts, is bigger than the economies of China, Germany, England, Japan, and India combined. It breaks down to $259,000 per household or $101,000 per every person in America. To most of us, though, the nation's astronomical debt is just a scary number. We don't feel it in our day-to-day lives. But the future us will care about it a lot if the government continues to spend a rising percentage of its tax revenue on servicing the debt. The other way the government pays down that debt is through issuing treasury bonds. But as we've been saying a lot lately, the appetite for those bonds from its biggest buyers, the Bank of Japan and the Bank of China, is dwindling. Expect this to become a hotter topic as we head towards the presidential elections in November. And number three... Where's all the big money going in venture capital and investment these days? To AI, of course, but just to a few companies. In 2023, according to PitchBook, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Amazon invested more than $18 billion into just three AI startups. Those startups were OpenAI, the parent company of ChatGPT and closely watched over by Microsoft, Anthropic, an AI safety and research company backed by Google and Amazon, and Inflection, another generative AI startup. If you're looking for the next unicorns, we may have just found them. According to Axios, OpenAI is reportedly in talks to raise funding at a $100 billion valuation. Anthropic is said to be raising $750 million at an $18.4 billion valuation. If you thought AI was a 2023 story, open up your mind, and better yet, start doing your research and establishing positions in the companies that are leading this revolution. It won't wait for you. Let's get set up for the week ahead, the first full trading week of 2024, and it's going to be a busy one. We're going to get the first inflation print of the year on Thursday with the release of the Consumer Price Index from December, another key data point for the data-dependent central bank. It will likely show a continued slowdown in the rate of inflation and may even sneak in under 3% on an annual basis for the first time in a very long time. We'll be keeping an eye on core prices that strip out food and energy, which are much more volatile. The producer price index for December will follow on Friday, and this week is the real kickoff to earnings season, which is going to be key for investors. While analysts are expecting earnings growth of about 1.3% for the S&P 500 for the fourth quarter of 2023, that number has been cut all the way back from September 30th when they were predicting 8% earnings growth for the market. Nine out of 12 sectors are expected to report lower earnings for last quarter. Curb your enthusiasm the big banks will kick off the reporting season with j p morgan chase bank of america blackrock bank of new york mellon and wells fargo leading the way we're going to be paying close attention to what they have to say about their net interest margins how's the lending business going in this high rate environment other widely held companies reporting results this week include delta airlines and united health group The new year is bringing investors a new set of vulnerabilities, but also more optionality across the capital markets. As the Fed lowers rates and inflation continues to subside, new opportunities are emerging in areas that haven't been to the party in a long time. Let's get smart about what those are and what we need to keep an eye on as the economy slows as we ride into 2024 with Anastasia Amoroso, the chief investment strategist at iCapital and a good friend of ours here at Investopedia. So good to see you.
1: Good to see you, Caleb. Happy new year.
0: You and your team published your 2024 outlook last month, which we'll link to in the show notes, folks. And it's super interesting, given the market and economic dynamics we are facing right now. Let's talk about some of the vulnerabilities you mentioned. Growth is going to slow. No two ways about it. But you cite the fact that GDP could slow to just 0.4% in the second quarter. That is really slow. Is that the effect of all those rate hikes from 2022 and the first half of 2023 catching up to the economy?
1: Partially. I think partially that's true. But I think the biggest reason for the slowdown that we're expecting is just running out of some of the excess savings that consumers had. If you look at excess savings from the pandemic, those are starting to dwindle. If you look at the personal savings rate uh, at the peak of the pandemic, it was sort of averaging around 17, 18%. Well, now it's down quite significantly below that. And then if you look at wage growth, that is starting to slow down too from levels that we saw in 22 and 2023. So you kind of put all of that together. Together, and we're expecting the consumer to be a little bit slower. And then the other side of that cable up is that we are seeing bankruptcies that are rising across the board. And they're not at an alarming level, but they are back to where they were in 2020. And when you think about, you know, what happens when the company goes out of business or when somebody defaults on the loan, that's financial stress that somebody has to absorb, whether it's an institution or an individual investor. So there's definitely some dislocation that. Can come out of that. So you put all of that together, and that's why we are expecting slower economic growth in 2024. But I will say, slower. Doesn't mean negative. Slower doesn't mean the growth is derailed. It's just slower. That's all it is.
0: Yeah, and we're coming off of a five plus percent GDP rate (laughs) in the third quarter of twenty twenty three. Everybody's (laughs) just got to take several seats, as my teenagers like to tell me. But let's talk about some of those financial distress indicators: defaults, delinquencies, bankruptcies. They're all kind of on the rise. We're not talking about two thousand seven levels here, but they are creeping up, and they're worth watching. Which ones are you watching specifically and what are you watching about them that kind of makes you want to focus on those?
1: Right. So, a couple of things that are definitely on the rise. We are seeing more bankruptcy filings. Again, that's the number that's back to the 2020 level. We are also looking at defaults rising across high yield and leveraged loans. But frankly, that's to be expected because if you think about a floating rate debt, somebody has to pay a higher interest cost for that debt. And that's a company that's taken on that debt. So, we're, we're seeing those rates pick up. But what I really big picture want to watch is what are the different sizes of debt piles out there and who's most vulnerable. And the way I gauge that is who has the most floating rate exposure and also who has the most debt to refinance in the coming year or two. So there, there's two or three categories that stand out first and foremost, is actually the US government. You know, when you think about the debt pile that we have in roughly $26 trillion of debt outstanding, something like 30% of that is set to mature this year. So if the Fed doesn't materially cut rates uh, in 2024, then that's a whole lot of debt refinancings the US government will have to shoulder. Now, I'm not saying that's systemic. I'm not saying that that's going to result in a very adverse case scenario, but I am saying that this is something to watch. And of course, if the government wants to address the debt trajectory, they can. They just have to be willing to do that.
0: Yeah, They don't seem to like wanting to do that. They seem to like to kick it down the road a little bit, whether it's the debt ceiling or something else. U.S. government debt just keeps growing. and We just came through so much spending through the pandemic, yeah. post-pandemic. And now we're feeling the hangovers with that. So, definitely something to watch. You also mentioned commercial real estate, which is something that's been bubbling since these rates started to rise. And the fact is that most offices, you know, we're still looking at, like, even in New York, 50 to 60% occupancy rate sometimes in some areas, especially around Wall Street. What are you watching in the commercial real estate? Space? Right.
1: I mean, this has been the talk of 2023 is the potential for defaults in commercial real estate and specifically $1.5 trillion or so of maturities coming due over the next couple of years. And look, on the surface, that is a concern because all of a sudden, if they have to refinance the debt at 6.5% versus 35 that they likely had it before, that's obviously a big increase in cost of capital. But here, too, I think there's some significant mitigating factors. For example, there's analysis out there that says that even if all those commercial properties had to be refied at six and a half percent, 90 percent of them would still have the debt service coverage ratio above one and a quarter times. And so that tells you that, yes, maybe they have a little bit less sustainability of debt, but they can still pay that debt and they still have enough revenues coming in. The reason for that is leverage in commercial real estate this time around is much lower than it was during the financial crisis. So that's why, on the surface, it's a concern. But when you dig into the sustainability, it's probably not as big of a concern.
0: Yeah. It then also depends where you're looking, because there are some places that's much worse than others where you have the commercial real estate vacancies, and yeah. then the debt, and depending on the duration that the we well, would say borrowed. Right?
1: Just a quick point on that. Of course, office is, I think, is what you're really zooming in on. And of course, the vacancy rates in office are something like 17 or 18%. And yes, we are expecting more defaults and delinquencies there. But when you look at the size of the office properties across the United States, that sort of pales in comparison to the residential real estate that's out there. It pales in comparison to the value of the bond market or the stock market. So, yes, there will be pockets of pain and dislocation, but I don't suspect them to be broad based. And by the way, just one other quick point on that yes, the delinquencies in office are rising, but only 10% of the buildings are actually responsible for most of those delinquencies. So not a broad-based issue.
0: Right. You look at it, you see it in a lot of the big downtown areas across the country, but broadly speaking, you're right, it is concentrated there. All right, let's talk about some of the uh, the vulnerabilities in the capital markets. You talk about peak valuation, uh, especially in different areas of the capital markets. You mentioned private equity, you mentioned venture capital. Yeah. What, What are you looking at there specifically?
1: So the older vintages of private equity and venture capital. So think about the funds that were raised in 2020, 2021, and deployed in 2020 and 2021. They were deployed at peak valuations. For example, late-stage venture valuations were through the proverbial roof, and private equity valuations were also pretty extended. So to the extent that some of these companies are now having to go back and find additional sources of financing, they may not be as widely available. And so when I think about venture, you know, when you raise a fund, obviously very dependent on the individual company and what they do, but 12 to 18 months is about the runway that you have of a particular financing round. So if some of those funds that were raised at peak valuations in 2021 are starting to run out, can those same companies go back to the funding market and find those additional funds? I don't know if that's going to be the case for a lot of them. So so we are watching, once again, defaults, delinquencies, bankruptcies from some of those VC-backed companies that aren't able to access the funds. So once again, this sounds obviously adverse on the surface, but from the perspective of the broader economy when I think about how much has been raised in those 2021 or so vintages, it's about $1.1 trillion. And by the way, not everything has been deployed at those peak valuations. So when I think about it relative to the size of residential real estate, for example, $12 trillion, I think it's a risk that can be managed.
0: All right, let's get into the opportunities because there are some interesting ones. On the flip side of the venture capital with the peak valuations in some of them, there are some newer vintages that right. could be attractive. And this is something that a lot of uh, retail investors, they don't feel like they have exposure to, but they can get it. So let's talk about why these newer vintages might be more interesting now.
1: All right. Well, the reason is the valuations have corrected. Whether I look at uh venture where valuations have dropped depending on, you know, this series A or B or C, they, they've dropped about 30 or 40%. When I look at private equity vintages, the valuations, the private equity valuations, they have dropped about 20%. So if you you are a new investor in a new vintage looking to deploy capital in 2024, you are able to take advantage of that reset in valuations. And the capital that you deploy going forward, again, is going to be deployed at much more attractive levels than you would have paid in 2021. And taking a step back, when we look at private equity or venture capital returns, and what end up being some of the best performing vintage years is those downturn valuation years. So I think that's an opportunity that's that's really exciting and compelling for investors this year.
0: Yeah. So, But institutional investors have no problem getting into these types of vehicles. Yeah. But retail investors are wondering, how would I even participate in something like that? There are some ETFs that touch that world. There are ways to do it through an advisor. For our listeners out there who are mostly individuals, can they participate in this?
1: Yes, there's increasingly more and more opportunities for individual investors to participate in private equity and to some extent venture capital. And you're right, this has been an institutional domain for a long time because some of the fund structures were specific to institutions. They locked up your money for a long period of time. They required a very sizable investment. But all of that is changing with, I would say, the financial technology that companies like ours, iCapital is providing. But also the fund managers themselves are starting to prioritize different fund structures, different products, solutions that are suited much better for individual investors. So that is a space, private equity, uh, venture capital, private credit, that's more broadly available to individuals.
0: Right. And the SEC has even made it even more so. We know the exchanges are moving in that direction as well. Okay, here's another opportunity. This one caught me a little off guard, but I would love to hear your explanation. Unprofitable tech. And we've been hearing from other folks that say... This is the year you want companies with strong balance sheets. This is the year you want companies that produce cash flow. That's different than unprofitable tech, which just means they haven't gotten to that mature point where they're actually producing cash flow. Why unprofitable tech?
1: Well, unprofitable tech has trailed the market massively in 2023. And if I think about the big tech companies, uh, they've rallied 50, 70 or more percent in 2023. Unprofitable tech has been left behind. And going back to those peak levels of 2021, the unprofitable tech basket is down about 54 percent still from those peak levels, even though everything else in the NASDAQ has sort of recouped uh, a lot of those losses. The big reason why unprofitable tech did not stand a chance in 2023 was because the Fed was still raising rates and we had to be concerned about default delinquencies and high cost of leverage. But if all of a sudden this year we're going in the environment where we have seen peak rates, they've started to pull back and the cost of leverage is likely to come down and maybe capital markets open up, that's a lot better environment to invest in unprofitable tech. Now, I'm not saying that you buy this basket and you stick to it for the duration of 2024, but I think it is a tactical trade opportunity for investors because in this type of market, investors are going to be looking for catch-up trades, and that's a pretty significant one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We've already seen a lot of that happen, start to happen towards the end of last year. Let's talk about direct lending. What do you mean by that when you say that as an opportunity?
1: So direct lending is a private lending and private credit uh, that is issued by non-banks, so by some of those asset managers, uh, to middle market companies. And again, it's not publicly traded. It is private. It is not marked to market to the same way that a high yield or floating rate security is. But the reason to get excited about private credit is because given that uh, Fed funds rate is still at 5 5.5%, five and, and you can earn a very generous spread of five or 600 basis points on top Of that, you're getting paid pretty handsomely in private credit right now in terms of interest income. So we're looking at high single digits or low teens of just income that you can earn in private credit. And if we're going to an environment, even if the Fed cuts rates, and let's say you can't park $1.4 trillion in money markets anymore, as investors have done last year, you could still earn a pretty sizable yield premium in private credit. So I think there's a lot to like there.
0: Yeah, let's see how many people are willing to do that because they know the safety trade has been on throughout 2023 while the stock market was ripping up 24%. So interesting. Muni bonds. I've heard this one come up a few times. Always kind of an interesting time for muni bonds, just given the tax favorability. But why 2024? Why Why muni bonds now?
1: I see so many catalysts for muni bonds. And let's start with rates. If we are, in fact, going in the environment where the Fed is going to cut rates, then Yields typically fall going into the first rate cut, and yields still also fall after that. So from a duration perspective, if you're buying a longer-dated uh, muni bond, you could have, let's say, rates go down 100 basis points. You could have close to a 6% upside in 10 to 12-year maturities in municipal bonds. So that's 6%, and then on top of that, 5 or 6%, and then on top of that, obviously, there is an interest income of 3%, but of course, That 3% needs to be adjusted on a taxable equivalent basis because you don't pay federal taxes on munis. But once you adjust for the taxable equivalent yield, you can get close to 5% in taxable equivalent yield. So then you're potentially looking at, again, high teens or low single-digit returns potential in munis. I think that's very attractive for investors that are looking for a well-diversified portfolio. And the last thing, about I would say on this, back to the government debt issue. If Congress, the president, the government collectively chooses to address the budget deficit issue, they may end up raising taxes. So the yield, the, the tax advantage of municipal bonds could still increase.
0: Yeah, big if, but it really depends on who's going to be uh, in the Oval Office a year plus. From now, all right. Real estate debt. This kind of makes sense, is given the rate differential here. But what do you mean by that? And how do you participate as an individual retail investor in real estate debt?
1: Right. So a lot of asset managers that focus on real estate don't only look at the real estate equity; they also look at real estate debt, and they have the ability to pivot depending on where we are in the cycle. So today, uh, you can get generous yield compensation by issuing real estate debt, and again, in the environment where real estate prices have been going down. And are still a little bit uncertain why not get that double digit yield by issuing the real estate debt by investing in that specifically so a lot of the money managers that we work with again have the ability to rotate along the real estate capital structure but they have been prioritizing debt now as the year progresses i suspect that some of those managers may be rotating back to real estate equity. Because real estate prices, commercial real estate prices have corrected about 11% since the peak that we saw in, uh, in 2022. Office has corrected a lot more, um, 25 30% level or so. But if the Fed does cut rates, that could present upside for commercial real estate prices. So I think real estate debt now real estate equity later throughout 2024.
0: Yeah, fascinating. You have to be aware of when to make that shift as well, but the Fed's been pretty transparent about cutting rates, maybe the minutes that came out earlier last week a little bit cloudier there, but the, the Fed's cutting rates in 2024, you can pretty much bank on it. All right, macro focused hedge funds, why hedge funds and why those that look at the macro picture.
1: Right. Uh so first of all, when we say hedge funds, there's so much uh, that's underneath. There's the macro funds, there's the relative value funds, there's the equity uh, hedge funds. And so we wanted to focus specifically on hedge funds. They can take advantage of movements in rates, currencies, commodities, and of course, equities, and really play the dislocation between all the different markets. Now, the macro hedge fund category tends to do best when rates are above two and a half percent. And when there's a fair amount of, volatility in the market. Now, obviously, some of that has subsided. Race volatility has subsided. Equity volatility has subsided. But that's not true across the entire global investment universe. You have different drivers of rates in U.S., for example, versus Japan, in Europe versus Latin America. So a macro hedge fund can capitalize on all those drivers. But big picture, the reason why you want this in your portfolio is because if other things in your portfolio are not doing well, this is your diversifier. This is your uncorrelated asset to the rest of your equities, credit exposure, and so forth. And so to give you an example from the third or fourth quarter of last year... When equities did sell off in August, September, and parts of October, this macro hedge fund category was actually the shock absorber and did deliver positive returns. So for a piece of the portfolio, given some of the vulnerabilities that we discussed, I think that's a category of hedge fund that makes
0: sense. Fascinating. All right, let's look big picture just at the year in general. Here's what you guys write. While it still makes sense to remain vigilant, the current landscape doesn't exhibit the same scale of systemic concerns as seen in 2001 and 2007. We talked about this earlier, the rising bankruptcies, rising delinquencies. There are isolated areas of concern, but those pockets should not generate broad-based economic distress. That's a pretty good outlook for 2024. A lot of people uh, pounding the table on the recession finally going to come. We waited all year for it last year, finally going to catch up to us. doesn't sound like you're saying that. You sound like you're in the soft landing camp.
1: I'm in the soft landing camp for 2024 as well. But of course, that is largely contingent on how quickly and whether the Fed cuts interest rates. If the Fed does pivot in March, potentially May or June, I think that's a game changer for the markets. And that's significant. If the Fed continues to hold steady, then I do think the delinquencies, bankruptcies and higher cost of leverage that we talked about is going to hurt more and more companies and it is going to become a concern. But given my expectation that the Fed has this window of opportunity now to cut rates, if they do, I think that's a big support to the economy and no recession, but soft landing.
0: You know we're a site built on our investing terms. I've asked you this one before, but I want to hear it now for 2024. Your favorite investing term right now, what's on your mind?
1: Optionality. And that is one that is in the title of our outlook. This is the year of investor optionality and a broader opportunity set. But I love that term because what a great thing for investors to have. And the first sort of level of optionality that I see in the market today is all those opportunities that we discuss. You know, if you Thought about 2023, investors really had one or two things to invest in, which is cash, money markets, and big tech. That worked beautifully. But I think what's really interesting about this year is investors have a lot more optionality to allocate, as we talked about, across different asset classes and also across different sectors. I think there will should be a catch-up trade in more things than just big tech. The other reason I really like this term optionality is because obviously options can play a big role in managing portfolio outcomes. And, you know, when you look at implied volatility today, it has absolutely collapsed uh, from levels that we saw starting last year. So that gives you different optionality to maybe buy upside optionality on parts of the market that you think may experience a catch-up, maybe you are more concerned about those vo- vulnerabilities. So low implied volatility gives you optionality to buy downside protection. So I'm going with optionality.
0: We love that a term with many meetings, but a super important one for 2024. Folks, we will link to the outlook from Anastasia Moroso and her team at iCapital. So good to have you back on The Express. So Thanks great for being to with see us.
1: you. Thanks for having me.
0: It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term is brought to us by the stock market, given the little sell-off we are experiencing to start the year. And that term is retracement. According to the world's greatest investing education website, A retracement is a minor pullback or change in the direction of a financial instrument such as a stock or an index. The term, used by technical analysts to analyze the price of securities, refers to that short-term change in a stock's price relative to an overarching trend. Once a retracement is over, there should be a continuation of the previous trend. Let's see if we get that this time. Keep in mind, retracements are not the same as reversals. With the latter, the price of a security must breach support or resistance levels. We are nowhere near that given the big rally we had in November and December. December, but it's worth keeping an eye on this trend over the next few weeks. Is this a normal retracement or the beginning of something more dire? We're going to let Warren Buffett take us out this week again. Here's the Oracle of Omaha in his first ever televised interview in 1962 talking about whether the stock market is a good indicator of the health of companies. Some observers from time to time say that the stock market is a forecaster of events to come. Can you... Predictor, Would you care to take a look at what you think this might be forecasting, the decline? Uh, The stock market has been a good forecaster uh, from time to time in the uh, past. It also has been a rather poor forecaster occasionally. Uh, For example, the last four or five years, the stock market has been booming along and uh, presumably forecasting better business, which has really not materialized. Corporate profits are are not any better than they were five years ago, but stock prices are uh, 50 percent higher thereabouts. Uh, So maybe the stock market is really uh, correcting a previous incorrect forecast this time rather than making a new correct one. There you have it. And in 1962, the stock market was mauled by bears in a steep decline that later became known as the original flash crash or the Kennedy slide. Buffett was all over it naturally. Thanks for joining us this week and special thanks to Anastasia Amoroso for coming back on The Express. Always good to get her insights. We'll link to her outlook for 2024 and all the reports we cited on this week's Express. Get those in the show links wherever you do your podcasting and on investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. Stay focused, stay smart, and stay invested this week and always. We may have 99 problems, but a retracement ain't one. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.